Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Whether by instinct or experience, our minds construct a subjective model of the world around us in order to ensure our survival. In terms of risk mitigation, this system is efficient and effective. For example, if a loud noise in the dark resembles your idea of an approaching bus, Even if it turns out to be something else, it is safer to assume the worst, so you step back onto the sidewalk. But what happens when our personal truths come into conflict with the common good? What if it is necessary to risk being on the road despite the perceived danger of an approaching bus? Language provides both the map and the lifeline that transcend personal truth to facilitate shared meaning. Words allow a third party to challenge your map of reality. Even as you jump to safety, someone shouts, CHILD! At first, your personal truth fights against this word because your body has evolved to seek safety. Again, someone repeats the message, MY CHILD IS ON THE ROAD! Suddenly, their words break through your perceptions, changing your understanding of reality. Against every instinct, you step in front of the assumed bus to save the child. Words bridge the immense chasm between our egos to create community. Words are the chief instrument of love. Words make wisdom possible in the face of many personal realities and an ocean of competing words. The word of God's wisdom bears constant repetition. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 32 to 44. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 181 of the Bible as Literature podcast. It seems to me that scripture was written to prove us right. We keep saying that this is about being small and about suffering. And we keep explaining that the disciples don't get it. And from time to time, our listeners will say, Aren't you a little bit hard on the disciples? We've heard that from more than one listener. Well, we have come to verse 32 of chapter 10. And verse 32 is here to remind you that we're not so shabby on the Bible as Literature podcast. Not only is Jesus trying to make this point that it's about becoming small, but it's really driving home the point that nobody understands what Jesus is teaching. So anyone who says, aha, I got it, 
you know you didn't get it because the text is teaching you that you didn't get it. The Bible packs such a punch that it does not allow you even to pretend to grasp what it's teaching. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So here, I just want to point out two key terms, which are technical terms in the Gospel of Mark. They were amazed, and they were fearful. Why are they amazed? And what are they afraid of? This is an important recurring question in Mark. Whom do you fear and what amazes you? Previously, they were amazed at his words when he said how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And here they are amazed again. What are they amazed at? Well, what did he just say? He just said that they were going to receive houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, farms, along with persecutions. So, what are they afraid of? They're afraid of persecutions. What are they amazed by? That Jesus says, this is what's going to happen. When it's more than they can bear, they're amazed and afraid. It's not because they're made small, it's because they think themselves great. That's when they're shocked and surprised. Wait, I should be able to get this, but I'm not getting it. Wait a second, there's persecutions involved? This sounds like a terrible deal. I don't understand anymore, Jesus. So he took the twelve, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, and spit on him, and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Jesus has to keep repeating himself the way a dad repeats himself to his children, because they are not letting the message sink in. In business, one of the most important principles in communication is over-communication. No matter how many times you tell someone the sky is blue, if they come with their preconception that the sky is green, they are not going to hear you say that the sky is blue. You could show them the blue sky and they're going to see a green sky because human beings, unfortunately, are naturally Hellenistic. We live within the framework of our own imaginary constructs. And teaching, scriptural teaching, is about getting people out of their head. With all due respect to postmodernism, whatever your personal truth is, is irrelevant to the rest of us. The question is, where do we all share common ground? And when Jesus repeats himself, he's driving towards a common ground that goes against the grain of human intellect. And here, the way that he tries to drive this message home is, you know, before he said, along with persecutions. And then the disciples were all in a tizzy. And so what does he do? He draws them a picture. Deliver to the chief priests and scribes, condemn to death, hand him over to the Gentiles, mock him, spit him, scourge, kill, and he'll rise again. Any questions? Because not only does he have to spell it out here, he already spelled it out in chapter 9. He's repeating some of the same words as in chapter 9. He's having to repeat himself verbatim in places. The fact that they are amazed, what's he going to come back at them with? The same thing he's been saying over and over again. But it's to drive home this point about being small, 
because Jesus himself is going to be made and shown to be small and that is what is overwhelming for the minds of the disciples. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And if that sounds a little bit presumptuous, that's because it is presumptuous. I mean, come on. Stop picking on the millennials. You can go back to late antiquity in the first century. You have the prototypical millennials, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. They're the ones that Paul and Galatians says are reported to be pillars of the church. It's interesting to see what happens with James and John here because they're saying, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. Previously, it was Peter who was the one who said, we dropped everything to follow you, trying to make the case. Last time when Jesus talked about the suffering he'd have to undergo, it was Peter who said, no, 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 you're not going to have to go through those things. Peter, James, and John are the only ones who show evidence in their words immediately after Jesus says he's going to be persecuted that they don't believe what he's saying. Understand within the framework of Galatians, within the framework of scripture, to be called a pillar is an insult. To be called the least is a compliment. To be called a pillar is to be referred to as someone who is part of the structure of institutional power. You don't want to be a pillar and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He didn't say yes. He didn't say, I'm going to do whatever you want. He said, tell me what I'm supposed to do for this you. This reminds me of the conversation between the prophet and God over Israel's desire to have a king. It has that feel like God is going to give them some rope now. And let's see, if I give them some rope, are they going to hang themselves? They said to him, grant that we may sit one on your right and one on your left in your glory. There's the punchline. How can you sit at the right hand and the left hand of Christ in his glory unless what you mean is, I would like to be the thief on the right side and I would like to be the thief on the left side so that we all die together. They don't know what they're asking for and that's why Jesus keeps disallowing them from speaking of the resurrection. They're doing what every single human being does. So every listener realized this is what you do. They conveniently skipped over delivering to the scribes and the priests and condemned to death and da, 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 until he will rise again. Ah, ah, glory. We want to sit next to you in your glory. When you go through all that bad stuff, when you're done with all that bad stuff, are we still going to have a place next to you in your glory? Because we care about the glory and we want to bask in the light and warmth of your glory. Although they don't really engage with the suffering he has to go through in order to get to that glory. The human being rejects having to suffer the persecution that come naturally, according to Jesus. But they want to celebrate in the glory. And this is what happens when people get very excited in religious services. Because they forget about the suffering that's supposed to come before that of giving up your own will to doing God's will, which is to show compassion and justice to your neighbor. But Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Then they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. 
but to sit on my right or on my left. This is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And once you understand that if we are talking about sitting at the right and the left of Jesus in his glory, that we are speaking about the cross, you realize how confused and how lost the disciples are. We just heard several times about powerless children and the kingdom of God. We just heard several times now about suffering, and they still are trying to make a video of God and Ezekiel riding in glory upon the clouds. You can't because it cannot function inside a human framework. The only way you can see God in glory coming upon the clouds in this life is dying on the cross. And now Jesus is saying to them, whether or not you're worthy to die on the cross next to me is up to my Father. So who really is chosen by the Father to be honored according to the glory of which Jesus speaks. It's not apostles who are crucified with Jesus, it's thieves and robbers. Come on now. The disciples in Mark will see when Jesus is confronted with his persecutions, they flee. Rather than say, oh, when Jesus was talking about drinking the cup and being baptized, it wasn't about a nice cup of wine and a bath. It's talking about the suffering that he's been talking about in chapter 9 and in chapter 10 and that they're still not getting. And he's saying, this is the cup that you are served at my table. It's crucifixion. This is the baptism, is the death that you have to go through. Are you willing to go through those? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Whatever cup, whatever baptism, yeah, fine. No, okay, you will undergo it. But are you worthy of sitting at the left hand or the right hand? Why is this question of whether being worthy? Because the only reason why Jesus is doing it is because it's the will of his Father. The reason why they're doing it might be because of the will of the Father, but very well likely that they just want to have the glory and be able to get the thing because they suffered. They want to have not a throne at the right hand of Jesus. They want a monument in the middle of town so that people can glory over their great sacrifice and their willingness to suffer for the cause. No, they have to give up their will. They have to give up what they understand to be glory and understand that it is not glorious. It is not beautiful. It is shameful. It is ugly judgment that they have to overcome. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. Now, people hearing this text would, in their minds, identify with the other disciples, the ten. For sure. However, the ten are wrong. Because they don't understand what they're indignant about. If they understood the gospel, they wouldn't be indignant. They'd be snickering. This is a trick for the reader. Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. You're absolutely correct. We were already indignant with James and John before. This is the trap for the reader to say, yeah, I'm with those ten. Those ten, yeah, I'm, I'm with those ten. Those ten get it. I get it. Let's see what Jesus says for us. But if you're with the ten, you're worldly because ten represents the nations, the Romans counted in factors of 10, which means you're just a Gentile in your thinking. So don't fall in the trap because they don't understand what they think they're indignant about. 
Calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. He's trying to redefine glory. He's been trying to do this the entire book. It's going to stretch into the end of the book, and they're still not going to get it. He's saying, here's what you understand glory to be. Your understanding of glory is a Gentile understanding. It's a worldly understanding. It's a Roman understanding. Your understanding of glory is completely upside down. And therefore, your feeling of indignation and 50 cents will not pay for the Lord's coffee. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your slave, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. And he is reiterating what we heard at the end of the last section in verse 31, but many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And they obviously didn't get that before, and so what he's reiterating and I, I keep using this word but I mean what other word is there than reiterate because this is what Jesus seems to be doing it almost seems like Jesus has already said everything he has to say now he's just saying it again for a few more chapters before he's crucified the reason why they're indignant is because they want to lord that over James and John Jesus they asked to be at your left hand and your right hand but us who didn't ask shouldn't we then be at the left hand and the right hand and Jesus is still tired of this. It's like the kid in class in second grade who didn't say, ooh, 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 and then is very proud that they didn't say, ooh, 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 and the teacher calls on them, and they look at everybody because they were quiet in class, and they look down on everybody. They weren't actually being humble. They were just not saying, ooh, 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 and that's what the other ten are doing here. So what he's saying to the reader then is, you think James and John were so bad? Well, I've been trying to tell you become the slave of James and John if you want to precede them in the kingdom. Serve them. So everyone who complains that the sermon should be more intellectual and we should explore ideas and why does the priest keep telling us what we already know? I don't need to read the Bible. I already know what it says. This is rebellion. This type of talk is rebellious talk. What you're really saying is you're too proud to be lectured. But scripture is a lecture. Wisdom is not fancy and complicated. It's simple and straightforward, and it bears repeating because although it's simple, it is not easy to do. My father used to say this his whole life. Religion, Mark, is very simple, but it's very difficult. Simple in its message, difficult in its implementation. They refuse to hear what Jesus is saying because every fiber of their being knows that what he's asking is extremely difficult. They've demonstrated now that human reason follows the impulse of our biology. Of course they're not accepting what Jesus is saying because they don't want to die. In spite of being Jews and having Torah, they still think like Gentiles when it comes to glory, when it comes to power. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. He is telling them point blank. I myself have to serve all of you people. In the spirit of slavery, friends, don't think of it in the spirit of McDonald's. 
because Jesus does not get a paycheck for serving. It's slavery. Jesus, as Paul teaches in Galatians, does what is required of everyone who puts themselves under the gospel. Slavery to others. Jesus is the prototypical slave in scripture. He's the prototypical martyr and he is a slave to his enemies unto death for their sake in the hope that the seed would take root in their soil. A ransom is what you pay for a slave to be freed. So in order to offer freedom, he offers his own slavery in return. But what is that freedom? That freedom is slavery to his father, slavery to God and his Torah, which is the only thing that approaches true freedom. Because when the human being thinks about freedom, they think about having power for themselves. They think about being an individual and, hey, 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 you can't do that. You're encroaching on my freedom. And that's when it becomes all about power. This freedom is a freedom that can never be taken away because you're serving God, but that allows you then to move out from under the boot of Caesar, from the boot of Pharaoh, in order to serve that which actually gives life rather than simply takes life. Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.